0: You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Amago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. My name is Matt, and uh, thank you, Tanner, for the kind words and in the introduction. Um, I count it a great joy and privilege to be able to speak to you tonight. Uh, it's humbling, but it's also exciting. Um, does that sound all right? Is it a little choppy? It's good? Okay. Okay. Um, so tonight, guys, if, you're, if you've been here, what we're doing is a mago day. It's the study of uh, the image of God in Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven. We were made in the image of God, and therefore we are to bear that image. So, if you've been with us, we've been studying different attributes like uh, incommunicable, um, the incommunicable attributes such as incomprehensible, that He's eternal. Um, that he's all, tonight we're gonna to look at that he's all wise. We're looking at these different attributes and then how it affects our lives. Um, but just as a little precursor, we're not going to be able to talk about every one of God's attributes. We won't cover every single thing that God is, nor will we exhaustively cover any given attribute. And so going into tonight, we won't exhaust the idea that God is wise, but we are going to look at a few areas where He manifests that wisdom to us. Um, and just as kind of encouragement why we um, ought to do this, Proverbs 25 two says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search a matter out. Um, Further, although we will not fully understand, we can increase in our understanding and our knowledge of God through His Word, um, and that as a result of this, our lives would be changed, that we would be brought to greater depths of worship of Him, um, even just simply that we would admire God more for who He is, for who He is. Um, well, tonight we're going to look at one of God's attributes, and that attribute is wisdom. Um, first, I'd like to start by just defining wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom. Um, As we set to understand a little bit more about uh, God's wisdom, it seems proper that we would understand what it is. Well, systematic theology, uh, Wayne Grudem defines God's wisdom as that God always chooses the best goal and the best means to that goal. Piper, John Piper adds a real similar definition, knowing what the greatest goal is in any situation is what the best way to, and what the best way to achieve that goal is. So both of these point to the fact that God not only knows the best in every situation, but he knows the best way to get there. He knows the best means to produce that result. Um, Further, wisdom implies knowledge, and uh, and God also has infinite knowledge. There's a sense in which it's impossible to, to separate all these attributes of God, and so God's wisdom and knowledge, along with several other things, kind of go together. Um, But in any given decision, God has infinite knowledge. Therefore, He considers billions and billions of opportunities for any one situation. He knows every possible outcome and every way to get to that outcome, and yet the outcome that He chooses is a wise one. for every situation in life, God has considered billions of possible outcomes, whether they're at a cosmic level or at a microscopic level. God is infinitely wise, um, and this kind of leads me to the next consideration, and that is, well, God alone is wise. There's not multiple things that do this. We do not think that way. We are not infinitely wise or or infinitely knowledgeable, for that matter. God alone is wise. Romans 16:27, the last book or the last verse in uh, in Romans, Paul says to the only wise God. Meaning not he's a God and happens to be wise. No, to the only God who happens to be, who, who is wise. Yeah, there's not multiple gods and he's the only wise one. There's one God and he is wise. Um, well, with that as background tonight, my goal is to show three areas where God's wisdom is, de- is demonstrated in order that we might fully come to a, come to a better um, stance where we can worship him more fully. Uh, And also that we can have some direction as to how we can bear that image in light of his wisdom. Um, The first manifestation of God's wisdom I'd like to look at this evening is uh, in his creation. Um, Now, there are several areas even within creation that we're not going to talk about, um, but we will dip into a few of them. Uh, God created the, the universe from nothing. This word here is ex nihilo. It means out of nothing, completely. This means there was no substance, there was no matter, no space, no time. There was nothing when God created. Genesis one one says God created. He created from nothing, and the means by which he did so was that he spoke. Uh, in verse three of Genesis one, it says he said, "Let there be light," and there was light. In verse six, he said, "Let there be an expanse in the midst of water, or in heaven." Um, and then there was heaven. In verse nine, he says, "Let the waters be below the heaven in one place and land on another." And there was land. In verse eleven, he says, "Let there be vegetation and plants and fruits and trees." And all of those things came to be. In, in Psalm thirty-six or in Psalm thirty-three, verse six, it says, "By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host." And then down in verse nine, it says, "For he spoke and it was done." So, guys, this is a God that has the power by his very words to create. All it takes is a word and create, creation. Um, All he had to do was say, begin, and it was so. Um, Well, not only did he create, uh, but in verse 25 of Genesis 1, uh, we see that all that he made was good. It would be impressive for, for anyone or anything to create from nothing, to just speak and have something come to be. But not only did God do that, it was good. He spoke, it came to be, and it was good. Um, Revelation four eleven says, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So God made all things. Um, not only did God bring forth the mountains and the physical the physical world that we see, but he brought together all he brought forth all things. And this Greek word means all things. It means all parts of the whole. Uh, so every part of the whole creation that we see, God created. This means, like I said earlier, the universe in its expanse, the stars we see, and the tiny little cells that, that make us up, the three billion some odd cells that make up each one of our bodies in here. God has made everything. Um, well, uh, we'll come back to those scientific things in a moment. But just in light of this, have you ever wondered why? Why did God create? Why? Um, and the fact that He made it all from nothing, um, it's not as if he, he had a lump of Play-Doh in front of Him and He was bored, so He decided to make something. He, he created from nothing. So why? And I'm, I'm not going to um, proceed to answer this fully, but I know that in part, we know that God created for His glory, and not unrighteously so, but, but He is so worthy of glory and praise and honor. He's made us to worship Him. He's made everything to worship and to exist and to breathe for Him. And He's rightfully so, though. He's worthy of that. Um, yeah. So, Hebrews 1.3 says that He upholds all things by the word of His power. Um, guys, God is, he is transcendent. He is far above. Um, and further, His relationship with His creature is that, that He is not equal with us. He is above. He, he goes beyond what we even know. And so, it would, it would follow that He is Lord over creation. And that is why we are to live and to, to breathe and to praise Him. Ephesians four six says, There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Um, everything exists in and through God. Um, well, just to expand on this a little more, I want to quickly and briefly look at five areas of science that God has wisely made and upholds. You'll see them there on your sheet. Um, my intent in this is not that we would... I don't want to worship the creation. I want to come to appreciate God's wisdom more through these, but the goal is not to worship these creations. It's to, it's to come to better worship God through them. Um, that we would come to grow in appreciation and, and, um, and, and worship for God and just how diverse His wisdom is, how diverse and in control of everything He is. Uh, so the first is cosmology. Just consider the stars for a moment. I mean, someone once told me that one star might be several stars, because it's so far away, it looks like one star. It might be an entire galaxy or collection of stars. Even if it's just a sun, think about how tiny the stars are and how far away they are. And yet God has made all of them. Um, You know, as I was kind of researching, it was encouraging to see that even cosmologists that study this, um, one of them said, we can't understand the universe in a clear way without the supernatural. This is likely an unbelieving guy, but he's just saying there's no way to understand the universe without the supernatural. The things of the universe are so far beyond any explanation by, by simple humans, we just simply cannot grasp it or understand it. Um, and David certainly agreed with this in Psalm 19. He said the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Um, man, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. God's creation in the ex- expanse of the universe somewhat speaks for itself, in my opinion. Um, okay, well, the second area is physics. Without gravity, um, no planet, no stars, no organism could exist. That just demonstrates the precision of God in things that, like I said, a lot of us don't even think about. We don't think about gravity holding the universe together or things on earth together. We don't think about nuclear forces that hold cells together, atoms together, the protons and neutrons and all that. Um, and yet God is wise over all of that as well. He is Perfectly working through all of those things. Um, The third area is astrobiology. In order for human life to exist on a planet in the universe, the following conditions must be true. Oxygen-rich atmosphere, liquid water and large continental masses, a home star, an orbital path that's neither too close nor too far from that home star, a moon large enough to stabilize the tides and tilts, uh, a magnetic field strong enough to reflect the radiation from the home star, and and a pot or... Yeah, and it has to be located in the narrow um, region of the inhabitable region of the galaxy. And uh, as it would happen to be, Earth fits all of those criteria. you might be thinking, wow, that sounds a lot like Earth. Um, the, chance of that, the chance of that happening by, or the probability of that happening by chance is one to one thousandth of one trillionth. And so I would just kind of go on a limb and submit that it wasn't by chance, but it was designed that way. The fourth area is biochemistry. Um, it's interesting to consider that during Darwin's life, when he was uh, coming up with this theory of evolution, he what they knew of a cell was like jello. They thought it was just a big lump of just kind of one substance. Uh, however, due to uh, recent technologies, we know that is not the case. Um, a single cell is comprised of very complicated molecules that have uh, multiple functions occurring at the same time. Um, the average cell is one-tenth the size of a pinhead, and yet in a single cell, there are three billion units of DNAs. Now, this has been compared to like a, a car factory where there's several things going on, several production things going on at the same time. This is how complex one cell is. Um, and now to consider this even farther, the, hu- the human body has three billion or three trillion cells. Um, so truly, this is a masterpiece of engineering. Uh, the last area I want to look at is DNA. Uh, for those of you that... Aren't in a field where you might study DNA, which I am not. I had to study this um, for this talk. But DNA is like a, it's like a, it functions like a software program. It's a four-digit code, and it's what makes up all of everything, basically all of us. We are made of DNA. They're the tiniest uh, things within a cell that carry information, um, and part of this is that they pro- they produce patterns that um, tell the cell to make, let's say, an eye or a piece of hair or an arm. Um, but the thing about DNA, it's, it's really incredible. It is the most densely packed um, information in the universe, more so than any computer or anything we know. Did any of you guys play video games growing up? I used to be amazed at the memory card for my Nintendo 64. I would play like Tony Hawk or Mario Kart and then save it and come back and on this little memory card, plug it back in and hey, it's all right there. No, no, DNA though, got. listen to this. The, the density in which DNA is packed is so tight that if you were to take all of the DNA for the, to make up every organism in the entire universe, you could fit it into a single teaspoon. Okay, you're tracking? Into a single teaspoon with room enough to fit every book ever written in the teaspoon as well. That is how tightly packed DNA is. The information in DNA, we, we just can't, we can't even fathom it, really. Um, and, and yet, what scientists, what atheist scientists even... Um, can't comprehend is where does DNA get its information from? If DNA is the quarterback of the cell, DNA directs the cell what to do, where does it get its information from? Everywhere else in the cell gets its information from DNA. Where does DNA get its information from? Again, I would propose that it is a wise creator in which directs even the tiniest parts of our bodies. well, that's uh, for you folks that like science. There was a little blurb for you. Um, we're going to go to Proverbs 8 now, though. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Proverbs 8. If you don't, there should be one in the hymn book holder in front of you. Um, we're going to look here. and In all aspects, God is infinitely wise. And in this passage in particular that we're going to look at, um, wisdom is personified. So it's given the characteristics of, of a human, really. Um, yeah, Proverbs 8, verse 22 is where we're going to start says the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old from everlasting. I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. And remember, this is talking about wisdom. So wisdom is speaking of itself. Um, the Lord possessed wisdom at the beginning before the earliest times of earth. God was wise. Uh, this goes back to the fact that God is eternal. He's outside of time. And for all eternity past, God was wise. He possesses wisdom. Wisdom is part of who God is. God is infinitely wise. Um, the author expounds more. Continue on. When there was no depths, so I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth, while he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed the circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. And this is why they call it poetry, guys. Uh, what a beautiful display here of of God and wisdom rejoicing together over creation. As wisdom stands besides God, and they look down on creation together, uh, it rejoiced because creation reflected its own wisdom. Creation reflected wisdom. Wisdom and God are sitting there looking down, and it's just it's reflecting both of their nature. Um, Further, wisdom is portrayed as a master workman here, meaning that in all the works that were done, whether the universe or the rainforest or the cell that we looked at, wisdom was there working with God. Wisdom is part of God. And it continues, And I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him. Wisdom was God's delight, and wisdom was always rejoicing before Him. The NIV version of this reads, I, talking about wisdom, was filled with delight day after day, You see, wisdom is fully satisfied in the presence of God because He is wisdom to the fullest. He is the epitome of wisdom. Um, The text continues to paint the picture of wisdom and God looking down on on their creation together and delighting in one another. Um, The expression used here is meant to display the ease in which they had just done it, as if a sporting event or a holiday pastime. David in 2 Samuel used a similar expression to talk about celebrating or, or rejoicing or dancing before the Lord. And the image is kind of like that of a father and a son that on a Saturday afternoon, they, let's say, rake the lawn together or they do something that wasn't that hard together, and then they give a, a big hug or a big high five. Uh, it's this celebrating, this rejoicing. We see here in the text, Rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Um. Again, the word here for rejoicing is to laugh, to be playful, or merry. And God and wisdom look down on what they've made, and they are merry. They're made joyful. Um, This text goes on to tell us that wisdom's delight is in the sons of men. There's a stronger emphasis here on the word delight than simply rejoicing or laughing. Uh, While God and wisdom look down um, together on all the earth and are delighted, they look down on mankind, and that is their real joy. That is what... um, is God's true delight, is mankind. God created everything and saw that it was good. We already saw that in Genesis 1.31. Um, And yet God's delight is in His creation of mankind. um, You see, there's an explicit difference between mankind and the rest of creation. And what is that? Well, consider our study for a moment. Imago Dei. We were made in the image of God. God breathed into us. We were made in the image of God. Nothing else was made in the image of God. Nothing else received His breath. um, And as we look at this unified relationship between God and wisdom, so can we as as God's creatures delight in the Lord and He in us. It's humbling to know that of all the created things, the stars, the heavens, the angels, uh, the planets, animals, we are what God delights in. Uh, We give God joy and we are His delight. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation and is the utmost display of His wisdom in everything that He's made. Um, Yeah. Well, I'd like to ask some volunteers, uh, not volunteers, selected volunteers to come up. Um, We're going to go to the next, uh, the next. So that, that kind of sums up God's wisdom displayed in creation. Again, it wasn't exhaustive, but um, it's kind of a little dip into it. His wisdom displayed in creation. Now we're going to look at God's wisdom displayed in dealing with Israel. We're kind of doing this funnel effect creation. Now we're going to look at Israel and the nations. Um, and to do this, I'm just going to read through Romans 9-11. through 11. I'm not going to read all the verses and I will comment at time from, t- from time to time, but Paul really puts this a lot better than I can. And so these are kind of for our help just to keep track of who's who. Um, if you want to go to Romans 9, uh, we're going to be starting there. And we're going to start in verse 3. I'll start reading. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise as regarded as descendants. Paul just explained here um, how not all of Abraham's descendants are children of God. He explains it's not the children of the flesh that are the true children of God, but the children of the promise. And this is tied back to Genesis um, when we see Isaac being the promise of the faith and Ishmael was the child of the flesh through works. If you recall, God made, he made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that he would give them a child. And yet when they grew weary of trusting him, what did they do? Well, they went out and did it themselves. They had their own. Abraham went and didn't trust God and had his own child. Um, this is somewhat of a type for us. Uh, found in verse 8 here, in that we are not children of God by, by children of the flesh, but by children of the promise. Continuing on, I'm going to go down to verse 24 in chapter 9. Uh, Even us, whom He has also called, not from among the Jews only, but also among the Gentiles, as He says also in Isaiah, I will call those who were not My people My people, and her who was not beloved Beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on earth thoroughly and quickly. Well, this passage follows uh, the infamous 9.14-23 where God's sovereignty and election is displayed. Um, but looking at this text specifically, this allows for both Jews and Gentiles to be saved now. Um, The only means by which they are saved, though, is grace. Uh, This sets aside any bloodline, any works of the law or of the flesh and causes anyone who is saved, whether Jew or Gentile, to know that it is by God's grace and mercy that they are saved. And we'll pick back up in verse 30. Uh, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. All right, so God's displaying here that the Gentiles uh, were achieving righteousness by faith, but Israel was still relying on their works uh, rather than faith. This led to Israel's rejection of the Messiah, the chief cornerstone. Uh, I'll pick up in verse 10, uh, verse 1. Brother, in my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, and I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. And continuing to verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart of man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the, mouth, uh, he, um, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a familiar verse to a lot of us. but uh, Right here, guys, as it might be obvious, this is addressed to everyone. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart that God raised them from the dead shall be saved. Uh, Paul then exhorts us to take the gospel to those who don't know it, um, and then it follows. It picks back up in verse sixteen. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed our report?" So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say surely that they have never heard, have they? But indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the to the ends of the world. Okay, so now Paul's about to—he's going to he's gonna repeat the same question and give an answer from two other Old Testament scriptures. Verse nineteen, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Just to expound on this for a moment, uh, the fact that the gospel was repeatedly taken to the Jewish people is restated three times here. Uh, so in response to this as a form of judgment, God opened the gospel up to the Gentiles. But in doing so, He didn't turn His back completely on Israel. No, it says that He has outstretched His hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Leading us to this, that the gospel is available to all. Um, 11, 1, Romans 11.1 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknow. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel: "Lord, they have killed your prophets; they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life." But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then. There has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Again, so it's supported that God has not forsaken his people entirely. He has sovereignly reserved for himself a remnant of the Jewish people, uh, just as he did in the day of Elijah, Elijah. This means that even today, God has for himself a remnant of Israel, a remnant of, of his people for himself, While undoubtedly the majority of Israel is in unbelief right now, um, there are some that believe as ordained by God. All right, pick back up in verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever." I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? May it never be. And just a quick comment here. Paul's saying, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? He's saying, no, that God's not done with them. They haven't completely lost hope. God still has a plan for Israel. He's still, he's still going to work in Israel uh, and bring them back. Uh, pick him back up again. But by their, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. This is a little bit complicated, so you might want to read and watch up here. Uh, as we're doing this, maybe hold the Bible up or something. I'm going to start over right there. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to, je- to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from, de- from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. All right, do you guys see what Paul's saying here? I'm hoping that this is helping us to understand this, but he's driving home in, in 12 through 16 that God is not done with Israel. He first argues that by their failure, the world has prospered in God. How much more will the world prosper when they are fulfilled? He then goes on to use two analogies in order to illustrate this point. Um, and the point is that what, for, what comes first is representative of the whole. Both the first piece of dough that was, that was the offering given to the Lord and the roots of the tree are what come first. And if these were holy, then surely what, what is to follow will be holy. Do you guys see that? What comes first is representative of what is to follow. Um, and this, of course, is referring to Israel, signifying that God is not finished with them and that he will bring them back again. We'll pick back up in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Uh, behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, or if you continue in His kindness, rather, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be cultivated into their own olive tree? Okay, that's a lot. But by the way of this incredible illustration, this idea of being grafted into the olive tree is shown that we as Gentiles, majority at least, as Gentiles can by faith be brought into God's family and in the same way that the the Jews Surely the Jews can be brought into what was originally theirs, what was naturally theirs. Um, We're getting close. Verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all of Israel will be saved, just as, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob." And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient That because of mercy shown to you, they might also now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Good job, Luke. (laughs) As Paul begins to close this discussion about God's dealing with Israel, um, man, isn't it cool how his wisdom is just bleeding through the pages? His sovereignty, maybe. Again, it's hard to separate these wisdom, sovereignty. God is in this. He's dealing with an entire nation group over hundreds of years. He's dealing with the whole world, really, in a sovereign way over an expanse of time, a long time, and yet He's completely sovereign. Well, there's only really one response to such depth of understanding and wisdom and knowledge, and that's in verse 33. "'Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways!' For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who was first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, the depths and the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. Guys, this is wisdom beyond what I think we can even really appreciate. God made us... Able to appreciate his wisdom, but I'm not sure we can fully appreciate this. Just the precision and the exactness of working through individuals' lives even in order to represent a whole nation. Um, And he works through every scenario like we looked at at the beginning in the definition of God's wisdom. He works through every scenario in order to accomplish this. What a wise and infinite God we serve. Amen? Amen. You guys can set that down. Thanks for your help. Well, the third and last um, manifestation of God's wisdom I want to look at is uh, that in salvation. Uh, in, order really t- in order to properly understand the passage that we're going to look at, though, I want to set forth a couple, of, uh, just a couple of important things. And first, it's that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man are mutually exclusive. That is, they are entirely different. They are separate. They are not the same. They are not meshable at all. Um, and the next idea I want to set forth pertaining to God's wisdom in salvation is that the natural man, man on our own, we cannot discover the wisdom of God. It must be revealed. Uh, hopefully that'll become more clear as we go through this, but um, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to bounce a little bit back and forth between chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, and we're going to start in verse 18. And just as a quick background, Paul's he's a, he's adre- addressing the Corinthian church, and they're arguing over who they're from. Some say, I'm from Apollos, and some say, I'm from Paul. Uh, it's interesting that actually after this, this passage on wisdom, they go back to that, and Paul says, well, you're, why are you arguing about who, who's from Paul, who's from Apollos? Um, most assuredly, Paul was aware of this, and this is why in verse 13 he says, has Christ been divided? And then he follows this by speaking of himself. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Nor were, were you baptized in the name of Paul, were you? Paul wanted the Corinthians to not focus on the messenger, but to focus on the object of the message. And that's why he said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Well, with this, Paul launches into this debate over godly versus worldly wisdom, and we're going to take a little look at it. Uh, In verse 18, uh, if you read that, you see that the, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To put this plainly, it just doesn't make sense to the unbelieving mind. It's stupid to them. They look at it and they they don't get it. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Um, Verse 14 of chapter 2 says this in a similar way. He says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You see, it is only by revelation and the miracle work of the converting power of the Holy Spirit through God that we are able to discern the things of God. Um, and this brings about salvation. This is when salvation happens. God opens our eyes and gives us the ability to see truth. He gives us the ability to, to understand godly wisdom. Um, he places us into Him. Uh, moving through verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1, uh, the wisdom in the world really just pales in comparison to that of God. Human wisdom is always found to be impermanent and unreliable. Um, the philosophers of these times, um, in, in this text, it says the scribes and debaters who were the educated, these, these are the guys that held the authority. And yet God asks the question, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? You see, compared, compared to God's wisdom, the wisdom of man is pathetic. There's just no comparison. God, God stands there and laughs and says, okay, well, where is the wise? Where is the, where is the debater? Where, where are you, man? Where is man's wisdom in comparison to my wisdom? Um, His wisdom makes all other wisdom look foolish. And this brings me to the idea that the wisdom of the world cannot come to know God. No matter how long philosophy and worldly thinking continues on, it will not find God apart from God. MacArthur commented on this and just said, You know, if you take the world's best philosophers and you put them in a corner for a couple days, a couple weeks, whatever, not one of them will come out with the message of the cross. They won't. They're going to philosophize their way. Uh, to other big picture philosophies, but not one of them will come up with a cross. Um, not one of them will find the wisdom of God on their own. And later on, Paul uh, speaks to this saying, uh, the things which have not entered the heart of man pertaining to the wisdom of God. If you look at verse 21 in chapter 1, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world and its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Well, here we see not only that the world does not come to know God in their own wisdom, but it also states that this was done in the wisdom of God. And that's a curious, curious statement to me because this implies that God had designed it that way. Um, God has made it so that humans cannot reach God on their own. He, he, we can't philosophize our, ourselves to God. God in His wisdom made it this way. Um, and further, He made it in a way that is foolish to the unbelieving world. His plan of salvation... Faith is the, only, is the only factor. Faith is the only factor. Um, and to the, to the pagan mind, this is dumb. Um, they can't understand it. They can't grasp it. And yet this is the way it was. By the cross, God was pleased to save those who believed. Um, you see, the world wants to be able to do something. Even in our world today, this is 2,000 years ago. This is completely applicable to our world today. Our world today wants to be able to do something to get to God. And then back in that day, the Jews, they awaited their promised Messiah, and, and they were awaiting these signs that would accompany him. Uh, they were promised a king and expected him to, do, to deliver them from oppression from the outside world. The Greeks or the Gentiles, they were all about knowledge. They were all about wisdom. They wanted proof by human reason and wanted something to talk about and debate over. So one, when the message of Christ is preached, it was a stumbling block for the Jews. See, they were so law-driven, they, were, they couldn't get over the fact that sinful, dirty Gentiles... Uh, if you will, could now be saved by the same God that they were working so hard to please. They couldn't simply by faith embrace Christ. They wanted more signs and made up their minds not to believe. And two, it was foolish to the Gentiles who, who desired proof and human philosophy as a means to being right with God. Um, they wanted to be able to think their way into the right standing with God. Um, well, if we look at verses 20 through, 2 through 24, um, the beautiful thing here is that is that though the preaching of Christ crucified was to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks alike, it it was the power of God for salvation. It was the power of God to Jews and Gentiles. Um, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians uh, 22-24. through For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is both the power and the wisdom of God. God's plan for salvation for Jews and Gentiles alike through Christ is the best decision and the best means to that decision possible. This is this is a manifestation of God's infinite wisdom. It's the best decision and the best means to that decision possible. Um. God has a chosen people in Israel, and yet through the cross, all of mankind is able to be reconciled unto Him. And again, I go back to the fact that man cannot come up with this on our own. Um, sinful and earthly-minded man cannot think the things of God apart from God. It's impossible. And, and this is clearly, this is the epitome of this demonstration in chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. It says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Okay, listen here. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Guys, this is the absolute demonstration that the, the wisdom of man just pales in comparison to God. We can't reach the things of God. All the leaders at the time, those that were in power, they crucified the Lord of glory the Lord of Glory. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory had they known, had they had any even glimmer of, of this sort of wisdom. Um, and this brings me back to the point that the, the things of God are dumb to those who are perishing, and the things of the world are dumb to those who are being saved. In verse 25 it says, the foolish things of God are wiser than the wisest of man, and the weakest things of God are stronger and more powerful than the strongest of man. God's wisdom... Something to understand here is that God's wisdom was not, it was not tested during creation. It was not tested in this plan of salvation. It wasn't exhausted by any means. But his mind wasn't even stretched. You see, both God's wisdom and knowledge are infinite and therefore cannot be tried and cannot waver. And this is why the comparison that we just read can be made. Um, man is, even man's best is yet so far below God's lowest. Um, man is bo- both foolish in what they think is wise and limited by the way we've been made. Our minds aren't like God's mind. Um, and God's wisdom man, it thoroughly shines through in His plan of salvation. He's designed it in a way that is foolish to man that places all the action and all the glory on himself so that no man may boast before God. Um, God's plan of redemption removes any glory from the deeds of men, Jews or Gentiles, and the wisdom of men, the Greeks and the philosophers, and He places the glory in the right place with Him. Do you see the wisdom in this? All In God's plan, all of, the, all of the credit goes to Him, which is how it should be. Um, and this is why the wisdom of God revealed to man um, is Christ, really. It is Christ. 2.7, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. This is a mystery that the, the mystery that man cannot come to know is Christ, guys. This is the stumbling block. This is the issue is Christ. Um, Christ came here and became to us the wisdom from God. This is the message that at many times in in the past the Jews and the Gentiles stumbled over and they scoffed at. And it's the same thing that people stumble over and they scoff at today is Christ. The wisdom of God revealed to man. Um, And yet to the humble, the ability to know God um, is given, to be sanctified, to be made set apart all by His doing. By God's grace, the wisdom of Christ, which is the wisdom of God, is revealed to us. In 2.10 it says, For to us God revealed them, referring to the things of God, the wisdom of God. Um, Well, this ought to lead to one conclusion, and that is let him who boasts boast in the Lord. We can't boast in our ability to keep in step with the law. We can't boast in our ability to to think our way, debate our way, reason, philosophize our way to God. Um, The things of God are purely from God and can only be embraced by faith and faith alone. See, we're given the mind of Christ and can now appraise the things of the Lord when we do so. When we embrace that, when we trust in Christ by faith, we now can discern worldly things, godly things, good things, bad things. The world's mind can't even do that. They can't appraise the things of God, it says later on in this passage. Um, guys, I just think the only response here is to humble ourselves and let go of any good behavior, uh, our longing to think our way to righteousness and to trust in God. Um, well, as we begin to close, um, as we think back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Imago day, we're made in God's image, and we've just looked at God's wisdom. Uh, we, we looked at three manifestations. How are we, as believers, to, to bear His image in, in terms of wisdom? We're not wise over creation. We haven't created anything. Well, maybe a sandbox or a little sandcastle, but nothing like that we can be wise over. We, ha- we haven't been wise over entire people groups like Israel and Gentiles. We certainly haven't been wise enough to to save anyone, let alone ourselves. So how do we as believers bear the image of God in terms of His wisdom? Uh, Let's go back to Proverbs 8. We're going to close here. Um, We're going to continue on um, where we were. And what I want to point out is that although we we cannot be all-wise and all-knowing, God has given us the ability to not only grasp and appreciate His wisdom, but also to live wisely ourselves. Uh, So one application for tonight is that Yeah, we grow in our awe and appreciation of God that we worship Him more fully because of how wise He is. But another application we're going to draw from this. Start in verse 32 of chapter 8 with me. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me. This is wisdom talking. Listen to me. For blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life. And obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. And those who hate me love death. 9-1 Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. And she calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food. And drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. What a beautiful picture this text is unveiling. Guys, wisdom has set the dinner table for us. She, she's got it all ready for us. She's calling us. She says, come, come. Two times in this passage, we see that wisdom leads to life. Uh, in verse 35 and verse 36, life is given from turning from foolishness to wisdom. And in light of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, the only thing that I can think the truest form of life is Jesus is His Son. Uh, John 17:3 says, "This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." Um, I just want to close by reading these two verses for you. Uh, Colossians, um, two, three. says I'm going to cut in the middle. It says, Resulting in in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself, so Christ is the true knowledge of God's mystery, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. And then down in verse 6, Therefore as you receive Christ as Lord Jesus, so walk in Him. So Christian, how do we respond to an all-wise God? We walk in Christ. Why don't you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. God, that you are wise. Lord, we thank you that we can trust in you. Um, Lord, that we can uh, grow in our worship and our praise and our admiration of you. God, would you make us to be worshipers of you? Um, Father, also thank you that you've given us the ability to appreciate your wisdom. Um, that we can, Lord, that we can we can worship you. God, the plants can't worship you. Uh, concrete can't worship you, but God, we can worship you. Um, further, Lord, thank you that you've given us the ability to live wisely ourselves. God, would we do so in a Christ-like manner. Lord, would we follow in his footsteps. Um, and God, would we live wisely uh, that can be seen to the world, God, as a, as a godly wisdom and not as a worldly wisdom. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for your Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.